Hey guys, hearty welcomes to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North East Wales' premier established spare room-based true crime podcast that covers the unfamiliar and long-forgotten crimes from both the UK and Ireland. I'm bringing you that is me, Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title and its creator and host. I'm made up to have you guys joining me here with newcomers to the show very welcome and you all diehards, well you're always very welcome back. I hope that you're all good and well this week. I have to start this week with a bit of an explanation. My busy times hadn't ended a couple of weeks back as I thought and I got a bit behind with the research for the planned episode scheduled against when I can record and edit the show. So hence last week I released a Patreon episode that I'd previously recorded, the Lincoln Axe Murders, and I postponed the intended one for a week. So the good that's come out of that is that I found more than enough material when I was researching to be able to create a two-part themed story, part one of which drops this week. I do usually make a point of keeping the Patreon episodes subscriber only, but sometimes circumstances call for them to be shared and last week was one of them. So my sincere apologies, I hope that it was an episode, if you hadn't already heard it, that you all enjoyed anyway. And because it was pre-recorded and still on the subject of Patreon, thanks very much this week go out to the new supporters of the show. That's Claire Keane, Jeff Schultz, Ellie, Fran Bain, Elaine Cowley, Liana Crabtree, Lady Danger and Dr Zombie. I love the names that some of you guys have on there. I am playing catch up a bit here, but of course, as I've said previously, I'll always get round to name checking supporters of the show because your support is very, very much appreciated. I'm also pleased this week to announce that myself and the hosts of some of the other true crime shows here in the UK have been chatting amongst ourselves and we've been discussing doing some collaborative episodes. I always love doing these, as you've hopefully heard the ones that I've done with Jess Carter, so I jumped at the chance to. Now, we don't have anything finalised for a date as yet or a topic, but as soon as we know, then you guys will know as well. Before any of that, though, I still have a series of my very own to crack on with, continuing with this week's episode, which is the first part of a themed two-parter. Have you ever visited the Lake District? The Lake District is a UNESCO World Heritage Site located up in the English county of Cumbria. Spot the Wikipedia stats here already. And the National Park covers a total of 912 square miles. It's a massively popular holiday and tourist destination visited by more than 19 million each year and not only can all of the land above 3,000 metres in England be found within the National Park but it takes its name from the 19 large bodies of water that can also be found there including the largest lake in England, Lake Windermere and the deepest, Wast Water. And it's the area of washed water that will be the focus of a large part of the case in this week's episode. It's a case that spans a number of years from the 1970s to the 1980s, and it began with the report of a simple holidaymaker who went missing. The resulting search did lead to a chance macabre discovery, but a totally unconnected one, and not the one police were expecting. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion guys, but bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as this week we look back at part one of an episode I've entitled, The Ladies of the Lake. 
The night was moonless, eerie and dark, and a chill breeze whipped across the dark waters of the lake, the darkness enhanced by the vast screed that took up one full side of the vast body of water. Although Wass Water, England's deepest lake up in the Lake District in the English county of Cumbria, is a mysterious looking place at the best of times, due to its size and its remote location, on that dark evening it took on an especially more sinister and foreboding aura. But that suited the man stood on the lakeshore late that night. After all, he was there for a sinister purpose, and the remote large body of water suited that purpose second to nothing. Not only was it the deepest lake in the chain of lakes that comprised the bodies of water up in the Lake District, but it's the deepest lake in England. It's the kind of place that you can bury a secret and it will most likely never be found. Most likely never anyway. Ensuring that there were no witnesses to what he was about to do, he returned to the boot of his green Renault 12 car, backed up almost to the lake itself, and removed a small yet sturdy inflatable dinghy from the boot, hurriedly pumping air into it with a small manual pump. When it was fully inflated, sweating with exertion from the task, he anchored the vessel to a large rock on the shore, before returning to the boot and removing from it a 28-pound piece of a concrete masonry block curbstone. He'd stopped at a roadside dump a few miles away whilst on his journey to the lake, collected the piece of rubble that he judged would be suitable for the task that he was about to undertake, and had placed it in the boot of the car before continuing onto washed water. Now he carried this over to the dinghy also, before returning and lifting out an even heavier load a large and awkward bundle wrapped in a mix of hessian carpet, plastic and polythene sheeting, lashed together securely with a length of rope. This he also carried over to the dinghy, and now having everything he needed in the bottom of the vessel, he passed the rope through a hole in the concrete block and fastened it securely to the tightly wrapped bundle. He then pushed the dinghy off from the shore and set off for his intended spot in the middle of the lake, rowing steadily. But just 50 metres out that night, the surface of the lake became startlingly choppy and the dinghy began to take in water at an alarming rate due to the weight in the craft. Now ideally the man had wanted to be right out in the middle of the lake for his purposes, but he now had a real concern that if he went out any further, the breeze may cause the dinghy to be carried to the far end of the water or the ever-increasing water level in the dinghy may even cause it to capsize. There was no option for it. This spot would have to do. It took an exceptional amount of effort, soaked to the skin and already exhausted from his exertions, to the point where at one moment he almost went in as well. But eventually the man managed to heave the contents of the dinghy overboard, where they were immediately gone without trace into the black depths of Wass Water. The man then set off for a frantic pace rowing back to the shore, because now he was on a race against time. Reaching the shore, he allowed the air to rush out of the dinghy, treading on it and squeezing it to hurry the process along. When he was satisfied that it would fold up enough to cram into the boot of his vehicle, he did just this, and then leapt into the car and drove off, repeating in reverse the exact lengthy journey that he'd just made. That dark night, the 19th of October 1976, 
as he drove the 350 mile journey that he needed to complete before morning. His thoughts should have been in turmoil, but he was professionally calm. It came with the many years of training that he'd had. It might not have been the perfect murder that he'd committed. It might not even have been intended. But he was at least convinced that he'd disposed of the body of his victim in such a way that it would never be found. No one would find a body in the bottom of 260 feet of water in the deepest lake in England. He was convinced of it. The black foreboding depths would hold the secret forever. Perhaps not forever, but for seven and a half years, they did just that. Skip forward now to the summer of 1983. What were you doing? Were you even alive? This week's surplus Wikipedia research on the show claims that 1983 saw the first cellular phone call and can be dated as the official beginning of the internet. Return of the Jedi had come out, the band Kiss first appeared in public without their makeup on on MTV, and a five-year-old future true crime enthusiast was having his mind absolutely blown by the A-Team and Knight Rider, both of which I loved as much as I loved my mum and dad. You watch them back now, though, and mm, best left as fond nostalgia, I think, really. In the summer of that year, a 21-year-old French holidaymaker named Véronique Marielle Mar arrived in Britain to enjoy a fell-walking holiday up in the Lake District, hoping to combine a walking holiday with practising and improving her poor English. Now, you couldn't have blamed her for heading up there. I've said before on the show just how stunning and picturesque a part of the UK that it is. It really is absolutely gorgeous, and if you do get a chance to go, then I'm sure you'd enjoy a visit there immensely. To Veronique, who was an agricultural student from Sceaux, near Paris, the scenery and magnificence of the area was almost like paradise. Staying in various youth hostels around the area on her trip, the enthusiastic postcards that she sent to her family and friends back home echoed this, containing statements such as, The country is beautiful. I wish I could stay here forever. Now that statement turned out to be prophetic in a morbid sense, because one morning after leaving the youth hostel that she'd stayed at in the small parish of Wasdale, Wasdale Hall, Veronique set off to hike around Wast Water and was never seen again. When she failed to get in touch with her friends and family back home, she was reported missing and a mass search for Veronique was undertaken over the screes, crags and mountains of the National Park. It was soon established that the last time Veronique had been seen was in Wasdale and she'd spoken to a Swedish holidaymaker of how she had intended that day to hike over to climb England's highest peak, Scaffold Pike, which is only a short distance away from Waswater. The hostel itself was on the southwest lakeshore of Waswater, with a number of routes that Veronique could have taken from there to get to Scaffold Pike, all of them skirting the three-mile-long lake. As we've said, Veronique's English was quite poor. To improve it had been a primary reason for her coming over to the UK for a holiday, and so she would likely have been remembered as she would have had to have spoken to someone for directions. But no one had reported seeing her or remembered someone of her description. She'd never been seen after setting off from the hostel that morning, so the area of the lake and its surroundings seemed a logical place to concentrate any search from. 
Although it was summer up there, over the peaks of the Lake District, it's so high that the elements can be forbidden and they can turn in an instant, and it was feared that perhaps Fernie had had a fatal accident, had taken ill somewhere, or had fallen from one of the crags or drowned in one of the many waters in the Lake District belt. It was, after all, possible that she could have changed her plans and headed elsewhere. A fall was considered to be the least likely. Every year the Lake District is filled with so many hikers and climbers, it would have been considered remarkable if no one had spotted her body. Also, she'd set off with her rucksack of belongings, but this didn't contain any climbing equipment or ropes, so there's only a limited amount of places that she could have accessed on foot. But if she'd fallen into a lake and drowned, well, there are 19 sizable lakes up in the Lake District and it could be relatively easy for a body to never be found. Where would you even start looking? And she'd last been seen by the deepest. Quite why she'd wanted to head towards Waswater is primarily for the stunning scenery of the area. It was voted Britain's favourite view in 2007, and it is proper breathtaking, I have to admit. But the lake itself, although it's quite vast, it's like three miles long, it is quite bleak and it hides in its perilous depths hundreds of feet of inky black, icy cold darkness, making visibility in most parts difficult below about 50 feet. If Veronique was in there, the darkness would make it near impossible to find her. Although a cursory search was made, it was because of this that prevented police divers from searching the entire bottom of Wast Water for the missing French student. Although they continued to monitor the lake as days turned into weeks, then into months, should any body appear floating on the surface. Although it is England's deepest lake, as I've said a few times, as though I'm trying to sell it to someone, I'm not really. Although it's England's deepest lake, there are plenty of areas of it where it is a lot shallower, and subsequently it's a popular area with subacra enthusiasts. Even many years ago for a time, there was an underwater gnome garden at the bottom of Waswater, complete with a nice little white shiny picket fence around it that had been installed and added to by divers there over a number of years that had become a point of interest and reference for other divers to explore. Now the garden was removed in the 1990s. It was blamed as the cause of a number of fatalities there as some divers spent too much time down too deep searching for these gnomes and the garden but rumour has it now that it's been replaced at a depth lower than the 50 meter legal limit to dive in the lake. I don't know how valid this is but I wonder if there is a gnome garden down there. Is there a gnome that's a likeness of Ian Simpson do you think because it's the only gnome that I can think of the top of my head the gnome who spoke to God. Skip forward now to February 1984, and when an amateur diver from Solway Subaqua Club named Neil Pritt read newspaper reports about the search for the still-missing French student and how police were now planning to send divers in to once again search the depths of Wash Water, his mind was cast back to a couple of months before. In November 1983, Neil had been diving with his club in about 118 feet of water, about 50 metres out from the southwest shore of the lake, when he'd spotted what appeared to be a large bundle of polythene and plastic sheeting anchored to a rock ledge. He'd remembered precisely the spot 
and although it had seemed to him at the time to have been too small a bundle to have been a body, and he hadn't reported it, now he thought differently, and eventually he decided to report his find to police. Now whilst I was researching for the episode, I read a single account that claimed that the package, for want of a better word, had been noticed long before this by other divers and had been actually used as an underwater point of reference for divers and even as a prop in diving lifting exercises over time. The account further goes on to claim that it had been moved onto the rock ledge in one of these lifting exercises from the original spot where it lay. In all of the other sources that I used for researching the episode, there was no mention of this, and this is a pretty big claim really I thought. So its inclusion here is just as a point of interest really. There'll be a link to the article claiming this. It'll be with this week's show notes. Have a read and see what you guys think. So on the 29th of February 1984, Frogman from Cumbria Police returned to Wast Water and dived into the spot where Neil Pritt had indicated to them, managing to quickly locate the bundle. To the divers who went down, It certainly appeared to them to be like a carefully packaged body. Had someone murdered the missing French student and sunk a body, hoping that it would never be found? The bundle was secured underwater and was then winched to the lake surface. But from the thick layer of slimy green vegetation that enveloped the object, it appeared to have been in the water a considerable time longer than the seven months since Veronique had been missing. It was transported to the mortuary at nearby Kendall, where it was carefully unwrapped. It was indeed a body. The layers of black, blue and clear plastic sheeting, when they were cleared away, were found to contain an old Hessian carpet, wrapped up in which the remains of a half-naked woman in the fetal position were found, a plastic bag secured firmly over her head. Attached to the initial macabre bundle was a further bundle, this one containing articles of women's clothing, and bizarrely, a portion of a magazine entitled Flyers World. Due to the lack of oxygen, the icy cold of wash water had slowed the process of decomposition of the corpse to a remarkably slow rate granted, but the remains didn't look like that of a 21-year-old petite student. The wax-like remains rather appeared to be a considerably older, dark-haired woman. There were no visible knife wounds, lacerations or bruising to the corpse, and as the pathologist examined the remains, something caught his eye. On the third finger of the left hand of the corpse was a gold wedding ring, and Veronique was not married. When the gold band was carefully removed and examined, although it was undistinguished on the outside, an inscription was found on the inside of the band that read, Margaret, November the 11th, 1963, Peter. This was now a murder inquiry, but first Cumbria police had to establish the identity of Wash Water's Lady in the Lake, and as the pathologist's report could not narrow down the time of death any further than saying she could have been in the water for up to several years, they potentially had a list of thousands of missing persons from all corners of Britain to look through. Why had this woman ended up at the bottom of England's deepest lake, and how had she got there? It was most likely to have been from a boat, but one police officer even mused out loud that the body could have been dropped from a light aircraft. 
Now this was certainly considered seriously. Wasp Water was a big enough target area to drop a body into from a plane, and there had been a magazine entitled Flyers World found with a body, so it's not a Columbo-style jump really, that is it. So to identify the mystery woman, police had this flight connection in mind. They also had the inscribed ring, that's a hell of a clue, isn't it? And they had yet another also. Among the packaging that had wrapped the grisly parcel, a carpet bag was found that bore the still distinguishable stamp of a furnishing store located in Guildford in Surrey, containing the mark Guildford, 19th of November, 1971. The extreme cold water of the lake remarkably preserving it. So at least detectives now had an area to try to pinpoint and to begin searching from, but it would still be a massive task to trawl through missing persons from the area over the past 10 years or so, or to try and trace every customer of the store in the same time period. It was decided to pass the details onto the press and television, and just perhaps the names inscribed on the wedding ring and the date plus the discovery of the Flyers World magazine and theory of the body having been dropped from a light aircraft, would jog somebody's memory when they were all put together and lead to an identification. Sure enough, it did. More than 300 miles away from Wasp Water in the town of Guildford in Surrey, Mrs Gillian Seddon read the reports of the discovery in Wasp Water in a morning newspaper and was soon on the telephone to detectives. Gillian told them how in the early 1960s she'd worked as a housekeeper for a couple named Hogg. Their names were Peter and Margaret Hogg, and they'd been married on the 11th of November 1963. The date, but not the year of course, happens to be the same wedding anniversary as my best mate. Peter Hogg was an airline pilot and a check revealed that he'd reported 37-year-old Margaret as a missing person to police at Cranley in November 1976, claiming that she'd run off with a man that she'd been having a long-standing affair with. He'd subsequently divorced her in her absence. Margaret Hogg's dental charts were duly obtained from her dentist, fortunately a week before they were due to be destroyed and were couriered to Cumbria Police Headquarters at Carlisle, where they were compared against the body recovered from washed water. They matched the dead woman perfectly. Margaret Hogg was the woman in the watery grave. And Peter Hogg had to be the prime suspect in the murder. A check of his whereabouts revealed that 56-year-old Peter who was some 19 years older than Margaret, was still alive and was living at a house in middle-class Mead Road, a district in the Surrey village of Cranley. As soon as Margaret had been identified on the 5th of March 1984, Detective Chief Inspector Stephen Reed and Detective Sergeant Christopher Rebanks made the trip down to Surrey, where they arrived at Hogg's home unannounced. Hogg had been out of the country at the time, as airline pilots of course often are, and had only just got back, and when he answered the door, DCI Reed identified himself and his colleague and told Hogg, We have discovered the remains of your wife. Now if you heard that, all sorts of emotions I imagine will be going through your head. Shock, horror, grief, sadness, absolutely all sorts. But only 
only if you didn't already know that she was there. Instead, Peter Hogg looked momentarily stunned and he gasped for breath, but he shortly regained his composure, smiled briefly but weakly at detectives and replied, That was unlucky, wasn't it? He then sat down and told detectives the full story. Peter Hogg had met and begun seeing Margaret in early 1963 when she was an air stewardess working for Court Line Airlines, the company that he was at the time a pilot for. Now the couple couldn't have been more different. Margaret was described as an outgoing, extroverted young woman who had many friends, both female and male. Where the latter was concerned, she also had a reputation for being promiscuous, not caring where she woke up in the morning, or particularly who she woke up with. Silver-haired Peter, on the other hand, was much more of a reserved character. He was 19 years older than Margaret, and was described as a quiet, level-headed, handsome professional. Dashing is a word I come across several times whilst this research in the episode. After a whirlwind romance, the couple had married in November 1963, and for a time, Margaret seemed to calm down her bed-hopping ways. Living in Letchworth, the marriage produced two children, David in 1966 and Geoffrey four years later in 1970. But by the time the second child was born, the rot had begun to set in. Margaret had become bored with married life. After David had been born, the couple had moved to the village of Cranley in Surrey and Margaret had ceased being an air stewardess and instead concentrated her efforts on running a restaurant that Peter Hogg had bought in the area, Freeland House. Hogg, meanwhile, was still an airline pilot, spending frequent amounts of time away from home and perhaps because of this, Margaret eventually went back to her old ways. It was later alleged that she enjoyed several casual flings over the years which Peter may or may not have known of, but a most serious affair began after the couple had been married for 10 years with a chance meeting. It was at a cocktail party in Los Angeles in 1973 where Margaret met and became enamoured with a married, wealthy international banker named Graham Ryan. Why both of them were there is unclear, I couldn't find that out through research, but it's reported that it was here that they met. He may have been more appealing because he lived quite near to the Hogs in living in Banstead in Surrey, and shortly after meeting, Margaret and Graham Ryan began a passionate affair, made much easier for her to carry out due to the fact that Peter was still an airline pilot and was constantly away from home. He was still enjoying a never successful career, even having a fleeting moment of celebrity in 1974 when he was hailed a hero after rescuing 385 holidaymakers who would otherwise have been left stranded in Nova Scotia when the company had arranged their holidays and Hogg's employer, Courtline, went bankrupt. Before the Lockheed Tristair aircraft that he was flying could be seized by Canadian officials, Hogg had instructed his flight crew as to his plans, rounded up all of the holidaymakers and their luggage and had flown them home to the UK in what was described as a moonlight flit. He was all very matter-of-fact about this, stressing the importance that everyone got home over quibbles over court lines insolvency. Very soon afterwards, now short of an employer, he began flying for Air Europe, 
a role that he continued in until late 1983. Meanwhile, whilst most people who were having an affair would seek some kind of discretion save being found out, Margaret didn't seem too bothered about doing this. Soon enough after it had started, it had filtered back to the ears of Peter Hogg and the couple had argued severely about it. Yet Margaret wasn't for stopping her illicit rumpo at all despite any rows, pleas or even threats and soon enough, Peter Hogg was able to keep an accurate diary of Margaret's indiscretions, which by all accounts she proper flaunted in his face. Not only did she often invite Graham Ryan around to Freeland House for free dinners, she'd be regularly meeting up with him in all manner of places for sex, being away for nights with him, away for dirty weekends, she would follow him on holidays while he was away with his family, and spend as much time with him as she possibly could. She even at least once became pregnant by Ryan, but later was to lose the baby. And all the while she would enjoy telling Peter the lurid details of the sex sessions that she enjoyed with Ryan. It was reported that she had marriage to him in mind from early in the affair, and whilst he could never bring himself to end the affair, he was absolutely entranced by her, he could not also bring himself to leave his wife and family. By all accounts, Margaret would often remonstrate with him about this, and it would turn violent. She was no stranger to domestic violence, often physically attacking Peter herself in one of the many rows that the couple had over her affair with Ryan, and this transferred over to Graham Ryan as well, who also several times bore the brunt of her physical rage. Yet the affair continued. Now I've said before on the show that it totally boggles my mind why some people put up with things like that. There is no excuse, no, no, none whatsoever, no excuse for any domestic violence at all, ever. Even extramarital violence, however, and they do sound it, however scumbags these two really do sound, and how little respect they have for respective families, it's no excuse to knock seven bells out of each other, is it? It's not reported as to whether Peter Hogg confronted Ryan over the relationship, but you have to imagine that he would have done, wouldn't you? He wouldn't just stand back and say, oh yeah, go on, I do the missus, go on. You have to imagine that he would have done. But it continued anyway, and Hogg is reported to have eventually just been patient and seen if the affair fizzled out, thinking predominantly of his children. He later claimed... One has to think of the younger parties, our boys. It's best not to have a break-up if it can be avoided. Well, at least one parent was thinking of them, because it seems to me like Margaret didn't really give too much of a shit as long as she was getting her extramarital length. Fair enough, think of your children, I get that, but putting up with that for years, I can't get my head around that really. That's a pretty crappy quality of life for those kids too, isn't it? An unhappy home like that. Peter also over this time came to know Graham Ryan's spurned wife Patricia, who he'd met and formed a friendship with and a mutual tower of support as they discussed the problems in their respective marriages caused by their cheating spouses. By October 1976 this had been going on like this for three years and Margaret was spending ever increasing amounts of her time with Graham Ryan. On the 9th of October the pair had gone away to a Dorset cottage for a week together 
and they'd returned home to Surrey on Saturday the 16th. She then met up with Ryan again the following morning to play golf and went for a lunchtime drink with him before arranging to meet him again later on that afternoon at one of their favoured nearby meeting places. Margaret then left to head back home herself to change for this rendezvous. Graham Ryan was never to lay eyes on Margaret Hogg again. He claimed later that he waited for four hours at their prearranged spot that afternoon, but she never arrived and he believed that he'd been dumped. When Margaret got home, the house was very nearly empty. Their elder son David was a boarder at Queen's College in Taunton in Somerset and was away there as it was still term time. The younger son Geoffrey was staying with friends of the couple for a few days and it was the Hogg's au pair's day off, so the only other person in the house was Peter Hogg. As was commonplace, at some point after she got home, an argument began between him and Margaret about the week that she'd just spent with Graham Ryan. Hogg later claimed the following. In the couple's upstairs bedroom, the argument had begun, over Hogg claiming later him telling Margaret that he was cancelling the car insurance on the second vehicle that she ran, just so she could go off gallivanting with Graham Ryan. And when he'd said this, Margaret had flown at him and had attacked him, scratching his face and neck with her fingernails and planting a well-aimed kick to his groin. He'd struggled with her and had punched her in the face, his signet ring catching a spot above her left eye and causing a wound which had bled profusely. In a fit of rage, she'd come at him again, and in his fit of rage, he'd placed his hands around her neck and had squeezed. In chilling detail, he later described... She came at me like a tiger, scratching, punching and kicking. I just lost control and grabbed her, punched her in the face and grabbed her throat with both hands and squeezed until she stopped screaming. I gripped her throat and held for a short time. I saw one of her eyes glaze over. She stopped moving and she slumped to the floor. I was appalled. I'd taken her life, but it was unintentional. It was following this that the level-headed, experienced and well-trained mind of Peter Hogg came back to the fore. He went on. As sanity returned, I realised what happened. I felt shock, horror, immediately followed by the realisation that I had to get rid of the body. I did think about the police, but only fleetingly. Knowing that Margaret's body would soon stiffen up and the limbs would not be able to be manipulated, Hogg went down to the garage of the house and returned a short time later with some polythene and plastic sheeting, an old hessian carpet, a length of flex and some rope. Taking her clothing off, he used the flex to secure Margaret's knees up by her chest in the fetal position and then wrapped her body up in the carpet and in the polythene and plastic liners, locking the bundle in the bedroom once he'd finished doing so. He then showered and changed his clothes, and then began to formulate a plan of what to do with the body, which under cover of darkness that evening, he transferred to the boot of his green Renault 12 car parked in the driveway. Early the following morning, Hogg telephoned the headmaster of Queen's College, where his elder son David was a boarder, and had arranged a 3pm meeting with him for that day. After making sure he had the items necessary for his plan in the boot, Hogg then set off from the family home in Cranley 
and drove the 150 miles to Queen's College, where he kept the appointment and told the headmaster that he would collect David the following day to take him home for the half-term holidays, claiming that he would be staying in the Taunton area overnight to be able to do so. In reality, it was part of Hogg's plan to establish his alibi, and he knew exactly where he was heading. When he'd finished his meeting with the headmaster, at about 4pm, Hogg had then immediately set off in his car, not to a guest house nearby, but had headed up the M5 motorway and then onto the M6, which is the worst motorway on earth, I have to say. I once wrote my car off on it and being recovered was a proper nightmare. It was unbelievably awful. Before eventually, Hogg was at his pre-chosen destination. It was an area that had come to him as the perfect spot. It was far removed from Surrey and it was an area that Hogg had been familiar with having been a pupil at Keswick Boys' School nearby many years before during the Second World War. Hogg was up in Cumbria's Lake District, parked in the darkness on the shore of England's deepest lake. After disposing of Margaret's body as described at the outset of the tale, Hogg then jumped back into his car and drove through the night back the 350 miles making it back down to Taunton early that morning, probably unbelievably knackered, having spent a fair few quid on petrol and probably needing a couple of new tyres to boost as well. He then collected David as arranged and took him home. It's not known exactly what he told the two boys about their mother being gone, although from the sounds of things it must have been something that they were quite used to, her being away like that, and as time passed they must have just eventually accepted the idea that she'd abandoned them and gone off to start a new life with a lover. After a period of time, and again there are differing reports as to how long Hogg waited to do this, some claim a few days, while others say it was up to a month. He went and reported Margaret as a missing person at Cranley Police Station. He told police that she'd most likely run off with Graham Ryan or possibly another person who she was having an affair with. He didn't know who except to say that his wife was a well-known bit of a goer and she wasn't backward in being forward. She went like a witch doctor's rattle by all accounts. Because there was no initial reason for them to be suspicious, people of course do go missing and police don't chase all of them up unless there are real concerns that something unlawful has happened to them. There simply aren't the resources to do this. The details of Margaret's disappearance would be simply passed on to Surrey Police Headquarters before being entered into a National Register of Missing Persons held at Scotland Yard. Graham Ryan was to eventually even telephone Peter Hogg after this to ask him what had happened to Margaret, to which Hogg replied, I thought she was with you. Shortly afterwards, Hogg initiated divorce proceedings against Margaret on the grounds of adultery and named Graham Ryan as co-respondent. Ryan was later to admit to adultery and he paid all of Hogg's legal costs for the divorce case as well as even settling a £250 bill that Hogg had sent him for all of the free meals that he'd eaten over time at the restaurant. The divorce was finalised by October 1977, and following that, no one had seemed to bat an eyelid that Margaret Hogg had never been seen or heard from since. People who knew her in Cranley were unsurprised, and 
probably thought that she'd indeed run off with a lover. She'd alienated many friends of hers over the years with her open flirting and the amorous attention she'd given towards their male partners. Hogg was later to say, She was a bitch. There were no questions at all from people in Cranley about Margaret. They were all certain she'd run off with another man. Nobody seemed to think anything of it really. It really was quite easy to settle down again. Over the next seven years, Hogg did just that. He wound up the restaurant, which had been struggling and which he claimed later had left him out of pocket to the sum of £28,000 and he'd cleared all of the outstanding debts with local companies, then carried on juggling his role as a father to two young boys with his flying career as before. In a strange quirk of fate, Hogg then began a romantic relationship with none other than Patricia Ryan. Although it wasn't a revenge affair, she was separated from Graham by this time, finally seeing sense and throwing the scumbag out. The relationship continued for about nine months and got quite serious with Hogg repeatedly asking Patricia to divorce Ryan, but eventually, as so often happens, don't know why, she decided to take Ryan back and her relationship with Peter Hogg faded. Hogg then went on to have a number of other relationships before meeting a 45-year-old therapist named Rosemary Steele, who he became romantically involved with. Yet even after moving on, he could never forget, and for those seven years, he waited for the midnight knock, as he called it later. And when it came, Hogg was ready to tell all immediately after carrying the guilty secret for all of that time. Soft as it sounds, he must have been relieved. On the 6th of March 1984, Peter Hogg appeared at Guildford Magistrates Court charged with the murder of Margaret Hogg, to which he entered a plea of not guilty to murder. No application for bail was made at that time, but defence solicitor Michael Bellis suggested that Hogg would be considering bail within two weeks, which unusually was granted to him on £20,000 bond and his trial date was scheduled for March 1985. Why exactly this was granted is unclear. His previous good character must have stood him in fantastic stead to do this, but it's still very unusual, isn't it? Especially being a pilot also, where he's the biggest flight risk that there possibly could be, isn't he? But he was freed and supported by his sons, who had also surprisingly stood by him, and his partner, Rosemary Steele. Hogg even continued his flying career, until he was sacked by Air Europe in late 1984, for what exactly, though, is undetermined. Hogg then started his own window cleaning business in the Cranley and surrounding areas, and it started doing quite well. He was growing a steady stream of customers before his trial began in March 1985 at the Old Bailey in London. When the trial began on the 4th of March 1985, Defence QC Patrick Back told the jury that for many years Peter Hogg had been provoked by the unfaithful and bad behaviour of his wife, who had especially flaunted a three-year affair with banker Graham Ryan to him. All of the salacious details were told to the jury about how Margaret would boast of her marathon sex romps with Ryan and how the long-standing affair had caused multiple arguments and conflict within the Hogg marriage. A rather unflattering testimony of Margaret's character was given by acquaintances of her, who told how she could act like a spoilt and sulky child if she didn't get her own way. 
They told how she would openly flaunt the affair with Ryan, even telling one of her friends, Ruth Humphreys, that she was pregnant with Graham's love child, but later lost the baby. Graham Ryan himself was called as a witness, and when testifying in court, he was described in the newspapers later as a pathetic figure. He told of the long-standing affair that he and Margaret had had, admitting how she entranced him and describing her as having an amazing magnetic personality. She was vivacious, attractive and charming. But it wasn't all sunshine and lollipops as Ryan agreed that Margaret could be demanding and sulky and she was often highly emotional, theatrical and could even be physically violent, naming several occasions where she had attacked him physically. Although he was unnerved by this, he couldn't stop the affair because she was under his skin that much. And if he had, then she may have lived. And then it came to Peter Hogg to take the stand. The events of nearly a decade before were then gone over at length by counsel for the prosecution Anthony Hacking QC. And when asked about Margaret's affair with Graham Ryan, Hogg said, I felt some antagonism towards him. I suppose if it had not been for him, none of this might have happened. I was shocked and devilishly hurt. I remonstrated with her many times over this. Of course I didn't want her to carry on with another man. Hogg explained how he'd managed to keep a diary of his wife's indiscretions and he could produce this for the court, reading extracts from it and details of her trysts with Ryan. He explained how the couple had rowed countless times over the years about her unwillingness to end the affair and how he had stayed in the family unit putting the well-being of his children firmly as his priority. Admitting his patience to do so stemmed from Margaret always changing her mind about leaving him and him not wanting to break up the family unit. But the affair continued and over years the tensions had built up and built up and built up, culminating in the furious fatal row that occurred after Margaret had returned home from a week away with Graham Ryan in Dorset. Mr Hacking told the jury that on the afternoon of October the 17th, 1976, Hogg had lost control during the row that followed, got his wife by the throat and had squeezed hard until she stopped squirming, and how the day following the murder he had begun to put an alibi together to disguise his real plan for the disposal of her body. This involved Hogg setting up the appointment with his son's headmaster in Taunton the following day, as cover to suggest he was staying in the area overnight, when in reality he'd made what was ultimately to be a 1,000 mile round trip to dispose of Margaret's body in the depths of washed water. And for several years she'd remained there, she may have still remained there to this day, until a chance encounter led to discovery of the body. She may have also remained unidentified, except for two fatal mistakes that Hogg had made. He'd overlooked the fact that he'd left his wife's inscribed wedding ring on her body, and he'd overlooked the fact that the plastic sheeting he'd used to wrap the macabre bundle had a laundry mark on it that could be traced down to Surrey. When asked outright if he'd murdered his wife, Hogg said, Murder is not the right word. Certainly she died. I think I strangled her. We had an argument. She did her usual act. She was always throwing things at me. She was scratching my face, kicking me in the crotch, and I belted her. She flew at me, hitting and kicking, then I grabbed her round the neck and squeezed hard. I realised one of her eyes was glazed and I let go. 
she fell back on the floor and I realised that she was dead. He then went on to admit to the court the full story of his actions as have been depicted throughout the episode. Painted as being cool and calculating in his actions following the murder, changing his clothes, wrapping up the body and setting up the alibi, Hogg was to admit, I was in a perfectly logical frame of mind once I put my mind to dealing with the current emergency. Describing his long drive north, stopping to collect a substantial weight to anchor the body, then loading up and rowing the inflatable dinghy out across pitch black washed water, Hogg said, It was the longest day of my life. You don't realise how difficult it was. I nearly went in with her. After a trial lasting only five days, while summing up, Mr. Back for the defence told the court how Margaret Hogg was an erring piece of humanity. The law recognises that within every human being lies the fires of emotion and you can provoke a human being just so far. The jury must have agreed with him because after only a short deliberation of just over an hour, they returned with a verdict of not guilty of murder but guilty of manslaughter. The evidence revealed at the trial of the appalling manner in which Margaret had flaunted her affair at Peter Hogg had gained him the sympathy of the court, which was reflected in the very lenient, absolute minimum sentence that he could be jailed for that was given to him. Standing impassively in the dock, Peter Hogg was jailed for just a total of four years, three years for manslaughter and a year for obstructing a coroner and for perjury in divorce proceedings. In the courtroom, Rosemary Steele buried her face in her hands when the verdict was heard, whilst Hogg's sons, both of whom had attended the trial, passed him a sympathetic look. After the verdict was announced, Peter Hogg said, Though I'm not going to enjoy the sentence, it is the end of eight years of living a lie which I have hated. I am tremendously relieved. The only good thing that it's done is give me seven to eight years free to bring up my young family. Mr Justice Piggott explained that the reason for the lenient sentence was due to Hogg's exemplary character and the glowing testimonials to his qualities as a man and a father. His crimes have been entirely out of character and I intended to impose the minimum sentence that was proper. Hogg had gained the sympathy of everyone, the judge, the jury, and his sons and partner who had all stood by him had even admired his character. Rosemary Steele told newspapers, He has had the most phenomenal guts over the past year. His sole aim has been to protect his children. It has been very hard with some very difficult patches. Yet their relationship had fizzled out by the time Peter Hogg was released from prison on parole on June the 26th, 1986, after serving just 15 months of his sentence. Waiting for him was his pen friend Marie-Christine Pinoul, who'd begun a relationship by letter and who had moved in with Peter Hogg following his release. Thereafter, Hogg faded into obscurity, the sensational case of the Lady in the Lake being relegated to a few true crime publications and awaiting to be resurrected many years later by true crime podcasters and YouTubers. Due to the passage of time, it's not known whether today Peter Hogg is still alive or not. If he is still alive, he will be very, very advanced in years by now. He'll be older than Mr Burns. 
but there was one final twist of almost irony to do with Hogg's story. Following her remains being discovered, at the express wish of her family, whether this means her children or her siblings, parents even perhaps, there's absolutely no mention of her side of the family through research whatsoever, Margaret Hogg's body was cremated and her ashes were scattered across the surface of washed water, which had been her undignified resting place for eight years. Would you do that? I mean, it seemed to me a strange choice of place to do this. Perhaps it's something along the lines of, you know, a captain should always stay with a ship if it sinks, and maybe they thought that she should return to the spot where she'd lain for eight years anyway, having been disturbed. What do you think? I thought it was quite odd anyway to choose that. With Peter Hogg's trial ended, the focus now returned to the very reason that had led to Margaret Hogg's body being discovered, the whereabouts of Veronique Marr, who had still never been found. Her parents, Francis and Michelle, and her sister Pascal, had made a number of trips over to the Lake District to search for her in the interim period, giving several interviews to the press and revealing how they sadly by now believed Veronique had come to some harm, either unlawfully or after an accident. They were convinced if she'd been able to, she would have got word to them by now, and even revealed the contents of the final postcard that they'd received from their daughter, which read, It is very nice here. I'm enjoying myself, but I'm disappointed that I cannot speak more English. I will see you in two weeks' time. In March 1985, just a week after Peter Hogg was sentenced to four years' imprisonment, Crime Watch UK, good old Crime Watch UK, staged a reconstruction of Veronique's last known movements almost 20 months after she'd gone missing. And that reconstruction is available to see thanks to Redcard74, epic YouTuber and honorary lifelong friend of the show who kindly uploaded the March 1985 programme in full. And of course, a link to that video will be with this week's show notes. You should check it out. It's an interesting appeal and it's well worthy of a watch in what was only the show's eighth ever episode. It of course mentions the Hog case, and there's even a snippet of news from the BBC TV archive contained within the appeal that shows the recovery of items from washed water to do with the Hog case. There's also interesting footage of police divers using a, as then, revolutionary new piece of underwater equipment in the search, and detailed surmises of Veronique's possible movements and police theories, but hey, don't take my word for it, go and have a look yourselves. But just two months after the programme aired, on Monday the 6th of May 1985, a 53-year-old Sellafield engineer and volunteer member of the Wasdale Mountain Rescue, Mike Parkin, was out rock scrambling on a scree near Ilgill Head, 1,100 feet above washed water when he found some clothing that was weathered by the elements among the boulder field. He said afterwards, Most had rotted away, but there was enough to indicate it belonged to a girl and there were some French marked labels. I went a little further up a side gully and saw the rest of her belongings and remains. I realised then what it was and went for the police. The skeletal remains were in dense bracken and overgrown heather at the base of a 300-foot rock spur known as Broken Rib Crag. 
Veronique had sadly at last been found, ending the near two years of soul-destroying uncertainty for her parents back home in France. At the inquest, held on Friday the 5th of July 1985, an open verdict was recorded as pathologists had failed to establish a cause of death due to decomposition of Veronique's body. However, with the presence of her full clothing, all of her belongings and her wristwatch, plus the location that Veronique was found, Coroner John Taylor told the court that the remains were consistent with a fall from height. He said, It may be that she left the pathway at the top of the scree to look at the view over the lake. Perhaps she went too near the edge, lost her footing and plunged to her death. But the pathologists cannot give a positive cause of death and we can only speculate because of the lack of firm evidence as to what happened. This scenario has been accepted by everyone, both police and Veronique's parents, have long accepted that crime was not involved in her death and simply that Veronique had tragically lost her footing and fallen to her death. Most likely she would have been killed instantly due to the substantial fall. But another source that I found whilst I was researching says that she could have landed on a ledge and injured herself severely. Unable to move or cry for help, she'd slowly died of exposure. Now I would have hoped that out of the both, the former was the correct one. Because that's tragic enough as it is, but the thought of a young woman lying trapped and awaiting an inevitable slow death, well that doesn't bear thinking about does it? The devastated parents said following the inquest, We've been to the spot where Veronique died 1,000 feet above Wasp Water. It was an act of remembrance after months of anguish. We knew our daughter had not just gone off without telling us, but until she was found there was always the possibility that she'd been abducted. The English Lake District is now a place of sadness for us, but we will come back. And with that, the full story of the Lady of the Lake comes full circle. Now this has been a case that I've long felt a number of things about ever since I first learned of it many years ago, and it's another case that's long been planned for an episode of the show. There are another two very similar cases again taking place in the Lake District that we're all going to form part of the same episode. But I do like to do things in detail here, as you know, and if these cases were all lumped together for an episode, it would end up nearly as long as Lord of the Bloody Rings. So while that's fine for a listen, if you like it, you try researching, writing, recording and editing it. Yeah... So the other cases that I had in mind will be out next week in the second part. I'm sure at least one of them will be very familiar. I've long found this case an absolutely fascinating one. Absolutely fascinating, but a chilling one with it. I don't have very much sympathy for Margaret Hogg, I have to say, because in life she sounded a vile specimen of humanity. She really did. I can even understand the provocation and Peter Hogg seeing red pushed to it by her behaviour over a number of years. But the image of Peter Hogg in the darkness of desolate washed water, dumping the body of his wife in the dead of night, is an eerie thought indeed. Personally, I find any vast body of water quite eerie to look at in the darkness or the light. It's just, I think it's just too massive really, but so imagine it at night. How creepy that must have been. But then the extent that he subsequently went to to dispose of his unfaithful wife, 
then lying about it for many years. That's where my sympathy stops, really. I'm also pretty surprised that his son stood by him. I can imagine it must have been some chat, that, mustn't it? Um, Sit down, lads, let's have a chat about your mum. But there are so many things about the case, the combination of the slightest things that Hogg overlooked whilst he was doing so to let that led to the identification of Margaret, the chance circumstances that led to the finding of her body, and the fact that it was ironically the disappearance of another completely unconnected woman that led to a long buried, completely unconnected, even unknown about crime being discovered, plus Veronique's final sad discovery. Well, Wasp Waters Lady in the Lake is an incredibly memorable and interesting case indeed. Don't you think? Was it one that you guys were already familiar with? Or are you just hearing of Hogg's crimes now? And as always, what are your thoughts about Peter Hogg? Pure cold calculating killer? Or spurned husband pushed beyond the limits of provocation? I'd love for you to let me know by getting involved on the discussion thread up in the True Crime Enthusiast Facebook discussion group that's now up. I know some of the usual rogues will be chipping in as ever, but everybody is welcome to. Please, by all means, let's hear your thoughts. Also make sure that you have a look at the links in the episode show notes. Check the Crime Watch reconstruction about Veronique, and there are some interesting articles in there to read, and there's an excellent video that I found from a YouTuber named Curious World, who'd also covered the case and the video was a mine of useful information in helping create the episode. It's one to watch and a link to his channel will be with the show notes as well. You can catch me on the usual social media links that you either have or if you want to and you don't then they're alongside the episode notes and should you want to well why not consider becoming a Patreon supporter of the show just ahead of bonus episode number 15 which is out in a few days on the 1st of April. I'll leave you pondering that while I wrap up here now and jump straight into researching and writing part two of this, which I'd love you joining me next week for. Until then, I've been and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, cheers for joining me today and goodbye for now.